My name is Josh McLean. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my privilege to be bringing the, the word to you this morning. We faithfully sit under the teaching of, of God's word, knowing that he will meet us here, and that what we hear as we hear the, as, as we hear the words of God preached, that it will be just what we need this morning. As we walk through the, the Advent season, we've, we've, we've looked at different themes We've talked about different smells or aromas of Christmas. We've talked about how, how Christmas smells a lot like hope. Christmas smells like cinnamon, it smells like clove, it smells like apples, it smells like pine trees, but it also smells like hope. And more than that, it smells like joy, and it smells like love. And this morning, we're going to see that it also smells like peace, as we wrestle with this idea of peace and what the Bible has to say about it, its definition and, and what it means to us, I think it would be helpful for us to take a passage this morning from Isaiah chapter 59. So Isaiah chapter 59, if you have your Bible, this isn't our main text for this morning, but we're going to use it to kind of understand a bit of the context of what Zechariah said, as Brian read for us just a moment ago. So Isaiah 59, this is Isaiah speaking to the Jews under the inspiration of, of God. He's a prophet in Israel and he's speaking to the children of Israel and he condemns them because of their sins, because their iniquities have made a separation between them and God. Isaiah 59 verse 2, their iniquities their actions that were hostile towards God have created a separation between they and God. And that's not too difficult for us to relate to, right? No, you're not the children of Israel living in this day. No, you've not done what they've done necessarily. Not exactly. You're not in this group that Isaiah has in mind as he makes this description and, and this condemnation. But in one sense, we are. We're not too different from them because our sin, just as their sin, has also separated us from God. But Isaiah is speaking to the children of Israel there in 59, chapter 59, says specifically in verses 7 and 8 something that I think is very interesting. He gives a description and an assessment of what have been the consequences of their actions. And this is what Isaiah has to say about this people in verse seven and eight. He says, their feet run to evil and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their, their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. It's interesting here. Isaiah is describing a culture of evil, both in philosophy and in practice, in thought and also in deed. I want you to notice something about the evil that Isaiah is describing. It's not determined. Evil is not defined by society. It's not de determined or defined by a supreme court or by, or by the ruling elite. It is determined by something that is outside of space and time, outside and altogether above creation. You see, you don't get to determine what evil is and what evil isn't. Maybe it's a little too early for you to think about that this morning. But what truly does define evil? When Isaiah says that these people are evil, that they run to evil, who determines what is evil? Who is, is it, is it Isaiah? Is it 
the culture at large, the people of Israel. No, it is not. You see, the, the evil nature of a particular act is not connected with the intent of the actor. In other words, it doesn't matter what your intentions were. It doesn't matter what you think the nature of your action really is. At the end of the day, you don't determine whether what you've done or haven't done is evil or not. Maybe it'd be helpful for you to think of it this way. It's not always the guy with the eerie grin and the you know, bent over back and the unnerving laugh, wringing his hands together, doing some kind of a creepy thing with his hands, you know, that's running towards evil intentionally. It's not always that guy that when, we, when you, you, know, you oftentimes think of that. When somebody says evil, you're like, oh, that guy's evil. He's just nasty and like, it's creepy and he's doing, like, what is this? But he's doing this with his hands, isn't he, right? And you might think, hey, that's what evil is, but that's actually not it. Often it's the politician who means well. Often it's the mother who genuinely cares. You see, your good intentions are not what redeem your actions. Your actions are judged good or bad according to the transcendent yet imminent word of God. That is the standard. What God says is righteous is righteous. What God says is evil is evil. And we are not allowed to redefine those things. And so when you think of this evil group, you might say, well, I don't think the children of Israel were that evil. And subsequently, you might think, I also am not that evil. Well, again, you don't determine. We, I, don't determine what is evil and what is not. A practical illustration for us this morning would be in the area of abortion. In the areas of the world where access to abortion has been constricted, even slightly, there are those who cry foul. Why? Many of us, when we hear that abortion and access to abortion has been constricted, even in the slightest way, would say what? Praise God, but many would cry foul. Well, what is, what, what is their, their reasoning? What is their, I, what's behind that? What's their motivation? The logical process behind determining that. You see, they're focusing on something other than the, the life of the child. They're focusing on the right of the mother, which in some sense is slighted. They're focusing on the right of the mother who has been denied access to abort this life that is within her. Now, it's clear to us, it's clear to many that the shedding of blood, even of an of a unborn child, is evil. And yet, in some ways, both sides calling evil toward the other, both are logically consistent arguments. The right of the mother is being slighted and the right to live given by God to this child is also. And so in one sense, both of them are, could be declared evil, but one is true and more true than the other. Why? Because its reasoning, its foundation, its standard is God's. It's God's. So here's what we need to understand that God alone determines what is evil and not you. Not your family, not your president, not your personal preferences. Certain actions or, or people may be thought of as, of, of as evil and, and by some and not the other, but it, that doesn't matter. What has God said? What has, what has God determined? The mantra of those described in the verses here that, that we are reading, Isaiah 59, 7 and 8, their, their mantra is, I see nothing wrong 
with this. I see nothing wrong with that. And the Bible's response to them and to you, if you hold that position, is you don't get to define evil. God already has. And so in thought and in practice, they've thrown off the restraints of God and they've run toward what seems right in their own eyes. And what is the result? Destruction and desolation. Destruction and desolation. There were things in their life that they determined to be limiting and yet it was actually what was protecting them. And that's what verse eight is really speaking of. Look at it. It says, the way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. No one who treads on them knows peace. Isaiah uses highway terminology often. He loves it. That's helpful for us. And it actually it serves as a foundation and a springboard for so, many of, so much of what we find in the New Testament. Way. Path, road, highway, these are all common uh, thoughts for him. He likes transport, transportation. And we, we find out particularly in verse eight that there are two kinds of roads or highways. There's, there's one that leads to peace, one that is peace. But then there's also this other set of roads that leads to destruction. It is marked with, as, as not having peace. It's filled with trouble. It's filled with anxiety. It's man's highway. His, his direction that path, it leads to pain. Only on the Lord's path do we find peace. Whatever else the way of the, of the world that it may offer us, it cannot, it never will be able to deliver on peace. Never. Never. So you have this group of people that Isaiah is speaking to, he's speaking about as we listen in, and he's saying, hey, they ran to evil, and they didn't think they were running to evil necessarily, but they had redefined what God had already established and they felt safe and they ran to it and they ran on this way of peace that the world had, had, had determined, that the world had established. And now they do, they, as they walk that path, they do not know peace. They do not know justice. They don't experience it. They have made their roads crooked no one who treads on them knows peace. Is this not true of Isaiah's time? And is it not true in our time? Those who walk the roads of the, of the world, they do not know peace. They, did, they do not know justice. My, how justice has been redefined as well. And now we don't experience it. And even little ones unborn, crooked paths without peace. Uh, I think it'd be helpful for us at this point in time to, to really kind of turn to this idea and maybe even try to define what peace actually is. What is peace? Well, whether you realize this as you walked in this morning or not, you're gonna get a Hebrew lesson this morning and so be paying attention. The word translated as peace here is the Hebrew word. I'm sure many of you have heard it before, but it's shalom. Shalom. It can be translated in, uh, into our English Bible as peace, prosperity. It has the idea of success, welfare, state of mind, friendliness, state of health, deliverance, salvation. It kind of gives this idea of harmonious relationships as well as absence of war, absence of hostility. 
But the Hebrew sense is, is more than that. It, it points to more than just the absence of war and harmonious relationships. It, it points to this completedness. Everything as it should be. One definition that I kind of forged together and, and kind of made my own, which may be helpful, maybe not, but it will be on the screen for you, is the fully orbed state of harmony, well-being, and prosperity more than just the absence of hostility. What is peace? It's this fully orbed state of harmony, well-being, and prosperity more than just the absence of hostility. Those that walk the paths of evil, which is to walk a path contrary to what God has established and determined that we walk, they do not experience that full-orbed harmony, well-being, and prosperity. They don't get to experience everything as it should be. They don't get to experience rest on all levels as God desires we experience. When I think about the absence of peace, a, a number of stories and movies come to mind. I won't share any of them, but I'm sure that you can imagine and, and, and call to mind a, a few of those. One poor decision leading to another, which causes a, a, a sequence of events that in the end, the movie is just like both satisfying and unsatisfying at the same time. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's satisfying well, it's unsatisfying because you see so much pain and you just see so many things that you're just like, I wish I could stop that. It's falling. I wish I could catch it. This person's in pain. I wish I could help them. And that's unsatisfying. But the part that's satisfying about a story or a movie like that is because it's true to life. We say, well, I can relate to that. I've experienced that. And that taking place is the absence of peace. I'm not trying to say that when we walk the paths of righteousness, that we don't experience anything bad happening in our lives. I don't mean to say that. But it's this fully orbed on every level, in every area, rest being realized. Even in the face of pain, a rest. Even in the, 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 the face of frustration, peace. It's on the spiritual level. On the communal level, on the familial, on the legal, intellectual, financial, ethical, emotional, mental. When all of these are intact, when all of those levels are, are at rest, we have this idea, we have this experience called, referred to as shalom. But it is ever elusive, is it not? It is extremely difficult to achieve if it ever has been achieved. Everybody wants it and nobody can find it. It sounds a lot like 2020, doesn't it? If you want to find some joy in your life, and I don't mean joy that lasts, but joy that pe uh, that's fleeting, uh, then get, get online uh, with the approval of your parents, as of course, and uh, Google if 2020 was a meme. Um, it, it is it is enough levity to uh, to to help you to get through one more day of 2020 as we near the end. And aren't you just hoping that at 2020 when 2021 flips over, that all of a sudden everything will just be wonderful? again, like it ever was, you know, wonderful. But wouldn't it be nice if as, if as equally bad as everything was in 2020, it would be equally as good in 2021? Well, here's, here's hoping for that. We have a greater hope than that, but that would be nice. But there is something that's alluring about this spiritual, communal, familial, legal, and all the others, 
all fully orbed and at rest. There's something that's so attractive about that. And you know what? It smells a lot like Christmas because that is what peace is. And Christmas, Advent, is a time where we realize that the Prince of Peace has come. And so we look at this account from Isaiah, this description of the children of Israel in Isaiah's day, not walking the path of peace, not experiencing that. We have this desire as we realize that that's us as well. We have this desire for peace. Now, in the book of Luke, we have a really neat story that often gets overlooked, and I really, really like this story. It's a story about John the Baptist's father. His name is Zechariah. He and his wife, Elizabeth, they had been unable to have children. And and yet, uh, we read that they get some pretty interesting news in Luke chapter 1. Here's Zechariah. He's a priest. And at this particular time of the year, he is chosen to go into the temple and to burn incense. And so that's where we find our friend Zechariah. He's in the, the temple and he's burning incense. And all of a sudden, the angel Gabriel appears to him while he's doing his performing his tasks there in the temple, and he says that he's going to have a son. And we, we could just blitz through this quickly, but I think it'd be helpful for us to just stop and think. Zechariah is not a young buck, nor is his wife. They're up in age, and they've come to grips with the fact that they're not going to have any kiddos. And yet, they, here they are, in the, here he is in the temple, and this angel is speaking to him, saying, hey, you're going to have a son, and he says, he goes on to say that he's going to be the forerunner of the, of the Messiah, the one that the prophets told about, particularly thinking of, of Malachi, the one that's like Elijah that's coming. He's going to be the forerunner for the Messiah. Well, Zechariah doubts that it can happen. And he asks a couple of questions and he, 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 he shows that he's lacking faith here. And as a sign, even as a punishment, Zechariah is declared to not be able to speak until his son is born, until these things come to be. Well, as you imagine, it happened. He actually wasn't able to speak. He comes out and he begins to tell his little priest friends about what happened. He tries to and he can't speak. And so they get him a tablet and he's trying to tell them and draw what's happening. And this is Zechariah's life until his son is born. And as he's born, they're de- trying to determine on there on the eighth day, he's going to be circumcised. And they're trying to determine what his name will actually be. They want to name him after his father. And Zachariah can't speak to tell him, hey, that's not going to happen. His name is going to be John. And he wants to say that and he just blurts out there. He tries to blurt it out. And for the first time in quite some time, he's able to speak. And he says, his name will be John. And the people are all shocked, amazed, The baby receives the name John. And then all of a sudden, Zechariah busts out with this prophecy of praise. We have it. It's recorded for us in Luke. This is what it says. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant 
the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, speaking of John. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation for his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. Father, this is our prayer that you would do just that, that you would bless this reading. As we look at your word, your people would be helped. And Father, that those who are far from you, if there be one here this morning, still in their sin, on the path that knows not peace, would they not take that step that by your spirit many of your saints have taken even this morning? And would they not walk towards peace? And receive this declaration that you have extended to us of peace on earth. We ask this in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. The main idea for you this morning, if you're taking notes, it'll be on the screen for you, is this. True peace with God can only be realized in Jesus Christ. True peace with God can only be realized in Jesus Christ. He alone is our peace. In a world inundated with conflict and confusion, Jesus is extending this offer of peace, of shalom. Zechariah prophesied that Jesus would guide us into this way of peace. And so when you ask, when you think about this, this time of, of Advent, of Jesus' first coming and even his second we ask, what has Jesus Christ accomplished for us in relation to this idea of peace? What's the connection between Jesus and, and peace? Simply this, that he has purchased our peace. The New Testament speaks of peace in two main ways, and, and both of them are accessed through Jesus. And one springs out of the other, and I'm going to give them both to you this morning. We'll look at two passages that coincide and really teach the doctrine that, of, of each of them. And, and this is what they are. Peace with God. The Bible speaks of peace with God. But it also speaks of peace of God. And so let's look at those two things. Both of them afforded, both of them accessed alone through Jesus Christ. As we contemplate the, the advent of peace and the coming of Jesus, I want us to look at Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. And so if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn there, as well as it should be on the screen for you this morning. This is what the Word of God says, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. A few weeks ago, we talked about love and we noticed that one aspect of the cross was that it was an example for us. 
The cross is an example for us. When we look to the cross, we see a wonderful example of Jesus laying down his life in love for the church. And so, yes, that is one aspect of the cross, that it is an example for us. It shows us how we are to live our lives as well. But it is so much more than just an example the cross is also an expression of Christ's obedience. It's an act of obedience. It's an act of sacrifice. It's an act of propitiation. It's an act of redemption. It's an act of justice. It's an act of victory. And of course, as we said, it is an example for us as well. And it is no less than those, but it is much more. One final aspect that I would give you of the cross of Christ is that it is an act of reconciliation. It's an act of reconciliation. The cross is where reconciliation takes place. You see the connection between reconciliation and peace with God. The concept of reconciliation between God and humanity is repeatedly found throughout the Old Testament and the New. And Paul, he uses the concept uh, more than he would, more than most. He loves this idea of peace and access and being brought near to Christ or to God through Christ. When the Bible speaks about redemption, that's a marketplace term. So there's redemption that the cross accomplishes by Christ. When it speaks of justice, the courtroom is in view. When it speaks of the cross, sacrifice, and in the temple, that's what's in view. That's the, the context. But when it speaks of reconciliation, what's in view there? What's the context? The context is family. It's friendship. It's relationship. So to reconcile means to bring together or to make peace between two divided parties. And really it assumes that it's something that's been broken, that existed in the past, but has been broken. And now as a result of some action, in this context, the cross of Christ, there has been afforded reconciliation or restoration between man and the triune God. The gracious initiative of God in sending his son to reconcile us, to make peace, to remove that, that, that sin, as Isaiah 59, 2 spoke about, that enmity that separates. It was, re, it was reconciliation. We've been restored to fellowship with our creator and now we have peace with God. We have access to God. And that's to those who have placed their faith. They've accessed this peace by faith in Christ. Clearly taught throughout the Bible is that we are all sinners and therefore we are enemies of God. So enough of this, we are all God's children. In some ways, yes, that's, that's true. But in a more recent and relevant sense, we are enemies of God. So if you were to be honest with yourself this morning, you would see that in your heart of hearts that you want what you want. And sometimes that coincides with what God wants, but often what you want is not what God wants. Whether you realize it or not, 
the picture that Isaiah gives us of walking the path of destruction and, and that a path that's void of peace is more relative and real than you actually know. And so perhaps by hearing the word of God preached this morning, you would have the blinders removed and that you would see that you and your life is void of peace, void of justice, and in need of reconciliation. In Christ and through him alone, we now have peace. And not only do we have peace, but we also have access to the Father by the Son and the Spirit. It's because Jesus Christ stood in our place, obeying the Father, bearing our sins, He has now removed God's wrath against us that stood against us. He's covered it and he's reconciled us back to God. So how is that accessed? How is peace with God accessed? It's accessed through faith. Through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel, is it not? That you've sinned against God. You were created for relationship with God. Each and every one of you created for relationship with God, but your sin has separated you from God. And it's not just some arbitrary act. It's enmity. It's acts of hostility. You've chosen to walk the evil path, thinking in your mind it's just a different way. But no, by definition, it's enmity, it's sin, it's evil. You're unable now to restore your relationship with God, but what has, what has happened? He has sent his son as a sacrifice to pay for your sins and to reconcile you back to himself. If you've heard that a thousand times in your life, does it ever get old? That your sin has been taken away by the blood of Christ and through Christ and through your faith in Christ, you can be at peace with God. That's how you access peace. It's faith in Jesus. And through that, you can have peace with God. This morning, though, peace may seem a bit ethereal. It may seem like it's hard to really grasp and see. Okay, yes, I believe. I've placed my faith in Christ. I recognize that I have peace with God. But I still don't access, I still don't have realized in my life this peace of God. And so you might ask this morning, I recognize that I've been reconciled with God, but how can I really experience the peace of God? Is there not more? Well, I'm glad you asked. This morning we've looked at the peace with God in Romans chapter five, but we also wanna look at Philippians chapter four and there we'll see the peace of God. And so if you have your Bible, again, I know we're jumping around more than we normally do. Turn to Philippians chapter four. We'll look at verses four through seven. This is what the word of God says. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what will happen? What will be the end result of that? And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and minds in Christ Jesus. Now we begin to see peace with God, most important. When we have obtained that, it flows into peace of God. Look back at verse seven, peace of God. I want you to notice a few things about that peace. Number one, it surpasses understanding. 
It surpasses understanding. The, the peace of God, it is above our understanding. It's above our ability as man to comprehend. It's this idea that when one from the world, one from the outside looks in, they will wonder why you're at peace in your current state of life. They'll do the math and they'll say, how can they be at peace right now? With, with all that they've suffered, all that they've lost, all of the struggles that they presently face, that doesn't make sense. It surpasses understanding. They can't make sense of it. There's a factor that they can't see when they do the math. In the face of losing your job, in the, in the face of losing a loved one, in the face of being disabled or even losing your health, you can still have peace? The answer is yes, it surpasses understanding. It surpasses what we experience in this life. And the world looks on and it doesn't understand how a Christian can have peace in the midst of struggle, in the midst of loss, and in the midst of pain. So we know the peace of God, it, it doesn't add up necessarily in this life. We can't do the math. It surpasses understanding. But more, this peace of God, it will guard your hearts and minds. Doesn't that sound nice? To have your heart and your mind guarded. Young ladies, if you think that your man's going to do that, you're wrong. It's not the peace of God that guards your heart and mind. It is, the, it is God himself. This peace, it guards the believer. Guard is a military term, right? You might say, well, I, uh, that makes sense. Well, yeah, of course it makes sense. It, it means to protect or, or, or to garrison, to surround by, by guarding. So there's soldiers assigned to watch over a certain area. So what, what's, what's being said here is that God's peace, it surrounds the heart and it surrounds the mind. It protects it. Your emotions and your thoughts, if you do these things, if you're experiencing the peace of God, they will be guarded they will be protected. So to have your emotions and your thoughts be guarded and protected, that is the peace of God. And before we get how to access that peace, for how to, to be from, uh, not just in the metaphysical, but in the physical, experienced, grasped today, before we get to that, let's notice one more thing. It's also, this is a bit hidden, but it's a byproduct of peace with God. I've already alluded to that a moment ago. But peace of God is a byproduct of peace with God. The most important thing that you have to have to experience shalom is peace with God. You see, all the other problems, I wish everything that I face in this world, I wish that it could be removed I wish I never had to worry about relationship issues. I wish I never had to worry about finances. I wish I never had to worry about sin. I wish I, wish I never had to worry about stubbing my toe or whatever it is or who to send Christmas cards to. I wish I never had to do that. Even if that all were to be removed and your life were to be easy and in some, and in some sense at peace, and experiencing shalom, it wouldn't be true peace because you, or I'm sorry, unless you'd been forgiven of your sins. You can be at peace with every single person that walks the earth, which by the way, that's impossible. It doesn't matter what you say, mask or not mask, Republican or Democrat or whatever, left or right, it doesn't matter. You're gonna make somebody mad, somebody's gonna disagree with you, but even if you could do that, 
All of that has been realized in your life and you don't have peace with God and you will never truly experience peace. So peace with God, it has a byproduct. That is the peace of God. And so if you have peace with God, if you by faith have accessed forgiveness of your sins and you've been reconciled to God, your creator, then you can experience peace with God. Think about that. Look at verse five. I think it's verse five. The Lord Jesus Christ is near. If I were to walk up behind you and I were to say, hey, be at peace. Have peace. Your enemy, they just walked in. They just came in the door. What would that do to you? Maybe it's hard for you to imagine because you don't, maybe maybe many of you don't think that you have enemies, but just imagine for a moment that you had an enemy and I were to say, hey, your enemy is near. What does that provide for you? What does that induce in you? Peace, rest, or anxiety? You see, the fact that they're saying, that, that Paul is saying here, that the Lord is near, he's at hand, he's coming, he's returning. He's saying, hey, be at peace. He's not your enemy anymore. He has reconciled you to God. And so peace of God, it works out from peace with God. But what are the practical steps? What are we to do? How can we truly realize peace with God here in this Christmas season? Well, Paul speaks to that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he gives us a couple tips. The first one is this, rejoice. The first one is to rejoice. Why? We've already talked about this a little bit, but even in the midst of all that you are struggling with, Christian, your name is in the book of life. No matter what you face in this life, remember this, that your name is written in the book of life. The greater context of the book of Philippians is that just, just a couple of verses before what we read this morning is that two sisters in the Lord were not getting along. Does that bring any comfort for anybody here? Like, hey, brothers and sisters, in Paul's day, in the first century, sometimes Christians didn't get along. And so Paul is speaking to them. He's like, hey, I want you to rebuke them. I want you to encourage them. They need to get along. And what does he say at the end of that statement in verse two? He says that their names are written in the book of life. And so he's saying, hey, you're gonna have struggles here. But why don't you go ahead and start practicing today what you're gonna experience the rest of your life and for all of eternity. You're gonna be at peace with one another. So go ahead and start doing that now. Work to realize that now. And so he's drawing their gaze from the circumstances. He's lifting their eyes to see the greater joy that's set before them that would bring rejoicing in their life. They have peace with God. That's the big thing. Rejoice in that. You have peace with God. Your name is written in the book of life. And when that takes place, peace with others, especially those who are also written in the book of life, just makes sense. It just flows. And so they are to rejoice because they will have peace with each other in heaven, so they need start now. And this rejoicing is a matter of perspective. Again, Paul is raising their eyes to see something. Yes, now is a difficult time for many of you, especially 2020. It's been a difficult time, and yet what are we to do? Well, we are to rejoice in the things that matter most. That the Lord is at hand, his return what we're celebrating this morning he will return he has come once and he will return again and our names are written in the book of life we are to rejoice i remember in 2019 in january 
as the church gathered for the first time as Hagerstown Church. We were there on uh, Franklin Street, 140 West Franklin in the uh, second floor. I remember us all joining together. We took communion together as a church there that evening. And it felt like something had been happening and building for a long time and it was finally here. We talked about something that didn't exist and now suddenly it's like it gave birth. It busted through and light was shining and it was like, this is awesome. And we were reminded that night not to rejoice in the fact that Hagerstown Church now existed as a church, but to rejoice in the fact, as Christ told us, and I think Luke 10, that our names were written in the book of life. So whatever we face in this life, whether it's the joy of the birth of a church or the struggle associated with the death of a loved one, even around the holidays, we're to lift our eyes and to rejoice, to put things in perspective. But not only are we to rejoice and to look at the, the great grand promises that the Lord has in store for us, but we're also to pray. We're also to pray, Paul says here in this passage. And it's interesting, that we're to pray because why? Well, one thing, he's near He's near, he can hear, right? He is coming, he is returning, and he hears the prayers of his people. When you find yourself in situations that, that lead to anxiety, truly the answer is to prayer, to, bring, to, to pray and to bring these things to Jesus. It's not, well, you could pray about it. It's, no, why have you not prayed about this? Church, this is a practical application that you can become a counselor today. As you live your life in community with the saints here in Hagerstown, no doubt you will regularly be called upon to encourage and to bring counsel to those who are walking the same path with you. And as they experience struggles and pain and loss and even moments of indecision, what should you offer them? And which way can you point them? You can point them to prayer and to pray with them. Imagine this, if you spent the same amount of time praying about the thing that you have worried about and talked about with others, without a doubt, you would already be experiencing the peace of God. If we were to spend just a portion of the time that we worry and chat about with others, if we were to spend that time in our knees, on our knees in prayer, we would experience the peace of God. And that prayer is to be coupled with giving of thanks, Paul says. Paul reminds us to take inventory of the things that we do have and to return thanks to God. And when you do that, it will bring you back to what? To the state of rejoicing. Do you see the cyclical nature of these three things that Paul gives us? One, rejoice. Lift your eyes to the gift. Lift your eyes to the hope. Two, pray. Rejoicing doesn't make our problems go away. It doesn't make things much easier, but we can still pray. And when we do that, we are to do that with gratitude in our hearts, remembering and returning thanks to God. And when that happens, it brings us back to rejoicing. So what will happen when you rejoice in the Lord, when you take your concerns to him in prayer, and when you thank him for the blessings he has already given, you will experience, listen, you will then experience the peace of God. A peace of God that is beyond comprehension and flows from the cross of Christ. 
Christian, true peace with God can only be realized in Jesus Christ. He alone, he alone is our peace. I wanna end this morning with the words of Jesus to his disciples not long before he was arrested. This is what he says. Peace, I leave with you. I'm leaving. I'm leaving. In a little while, I won't be with you. But he says, peace, I leave with you. He says, my peace, I give to you. Wouldn't you love to have the peace that Jesus had? In the face of all that he experienced, in the face of all that he struggled through, in the face of all the pain and the suffering and the loss and the abandonment, he had peace. Wouldn't you love to have that peace? He said, I am leaving and I leave you my peace. I give it to you. And then he goes on to say, not as the world gives you do I give it to you? Not with an empty promise. Not giving it to you for a small time and then taking it back. I don't, Jesus doesn't give as the world does. And he says, I, I don't want to see you in pain. I don't want to see you in a, with anxiety and, and all this stress. And I know this is a difficult time. He says, I'm leaving you my peace. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. What a beautiful thing that we have. What a beautiful promise that we have as Christians this morning. And that invitation is for you this morning. If you're far from God, you too can experience the peace of God. If you first experience the peace with God. True peace with God can only be realized in Jesus Christ. He alone is our peace. Church, let's rejoice, let's pray, and let's give thanks. Father, we thank you for the words of Christ this morning that were recorded for our benefit. Father, we long for this as your people. And we know that the world, even though they may not be able to articulate, they long for this as well. They long that they be reconciled to God. That, that broken part of their, of their existence, the lack of shalom would be realized in their own lives. So you, we pray that as we embrace that peace that guards our hearts, that guards our minds, that flows from the cross of Christ with joy at this season, I pray it would be declared and that those far from God would be drawn near and that they too would experience reconciliation, that they too would experience peace with God and the peace of God. We hope and pray for these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.